Hello and welcome to the Business of Software podcast, episode 62, with me, Kirk Bailey. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. As you may or may not know, every week I dive into the vast array of talks given at Boss Conferences over the past decade and share them with you to help teach and inspire you wonderful listeners. This week, April Dunford, founder of Ambient Strategy, discusses selling your point of view. April is going to teach you the difference between selling and helping customers buy. Startups often struggle to communicate the value of their products, particularly in meetings. From pitches that drown customers in waves of words and features to high-concept vision pitches that leave customers confused and sceptical. Many companies struggle to connect authentically with customers in a way that actually generates deals. There are lots of different types of pitches, but the one you need is the point-of-view pitch, and April is here to help. Happy listening. This is maybe a little bit rough, but I think it's a good idea. And we had a neat conversation about it yesterday in the breakout, which, which was super helpful to me as, as well, just because the more I talk about this, the more it clarifies my thoughts. Um, so, so we'll do this, but I'm really looking forward to the Q&A at the end of this to see if this actually makes sense to people. <laughs> so here we go. Um, this is a talk about... Uh, positioning, but a little bit more about how you communicate your positioning or share your positioning. Um, and I think it's relevant both about how you share your positioning to customers or people that you're trying to sell stuff to, uh, but also internally and partners and other people that just need to understand what your stuff is all about. Um, so a little background on this. So it starts with this, like you have to kind of put yourself in the shoes of a customer. And so imagine I'm a, a buyer and maybe I decide or my boss decides, you know what, you should go buy this thing. And just for argument's sake, let's say the thing is, uh, you know, I manage a sales team or I manage training for a sales team. And so I'm the, the sales enablement manager. And my boss comes and says, you know what, we should do this with some software. There must be some great software to do this. You should go out and figure it out. Like, but, you know, bring, bring, me, bring me some software that we should buy to do this thing. And so what do you do? Like the first thing to realize is this buyer, and this is true in almost everything we sell, that buyer has never purchased that thing before. So they, they don't know anything, they don't know what's good and what's not good. They don't know necessarily what features are possible and not possible. They have no, they have problems that they need to get solved, but they don't necessarily know what the state of the art is on these technologies. What should my purchase criteria be? And then how do I make a short list? So they'll go looking around. And so, you know, I might find a, a chart like this and say, Ooh, baby, does this narrow it down? No, <laughs> no, it doesn't. This is actually terrifying. So I get to this and I'm like, okay, this is bad. This is, this is not good. Um, there's a lot more here than I thought there was going to be. Uh, th this is kind of scary. And, but then after a while, I, I, I spunk around and I figure out there's actually a category of software that 
for doing this stuff. It's called sales enablement, Eureka, that's great. Except the bad news is, even when I just look at that, terror, like there's dozens of things here. Like, I don't know, should I, I, I can't evaluate all these things. There's way too many of them. So then I start doing searches like best sales enablement software, or how do I buy sales enablement software, things like that. And I end up at sites like software advice or G2 crowd or the, and there's tons of these and they probably already dominate the keywords for your industry. So your buyer Googles this and they end up on one of these comparison sites. And so G2 crowd's a great example and comparison sites will give them charts that look like this. And what do I see there? I see the same logos that I saw on the previous slide arranged slightly differently. And at first you might think, well, this is helpful, right? Because I want things that are up in the top right, right? Except that I'm the buyer and I look at this and I go, hmm, some of those things up there in the top right are just for great big businesses. And we're a tiny little startup. Some of those things look really expensive. We can't afford that. So the axes on these, like high performance and a leader, I don't necessarily want high performance and a leader. I've got different criteria than that. I want something that's a little bit cheaper. I don't actually care that much about high performance. So this thing actually doesn't help me. And in fact, the dirty secret of these companies, I hope nobody here works at G2 Crowd, but the dirty secret of these companies is they make money from customer confusion. So they actually, and you'll notice this if you're a vendor, they have tons and tons of grids that don't even make any sense. And they put vendors in grids that you're like, we're not sales enablement. Why are we in the sales enablement grid? And that's because they sell leads. So anybody that's in here trying to figure this out, fills out a little form and then a, a, a vendor can buy that lead. So they're actually incented to confuse the heck out of customers. So this is my challenge on the customer side. Now, that's the customer. Now I'm a startup. So let's say I am actually the perfect solution for that gal. So I'm a little startup in the sales enablement space. And that's me down there in the little box. <laughs> how does anybody like, how does anybody find me or pick me? This sucks. I don't want to be the little box down there in the 7,000 chart thing. And here's me over here. And I've done an amazing job of making my customers happy. That's why I'm way over here on the high performance, but I'm a startup. That's why I'm not in the very top, top, top corner. Cause I, I just don't have enough. I don't have as many customers as HubSpot does, for example, who by the way, isn't even sales enablement. What are they doing up there? So, so, so that's me. And so I got all these happy customers, but I don't like, how's anybody going to pick me or know when to pick me? Um, and then here's where it gets even worse. Like, so, you know, once a, I, a miracle occurs and a customer actually decides to contact me. And so they're going to come and, 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 and I'm going to pitch them. And so what the customer's thinking about on the other side is, you know, should I pick you or not? Should you be in my top three or not? Should I invest more time in thinking about you or not? And then we on the startup side, we're launching our pitch. So the customer comes and here's what the pitches look like. We tend to have kind of three styles of pitches, like how we pitch customers when they come to us. So the, the one that you see the most 
is, for startups in particular, technical founders, is what I call the features, features, features pitch. And this is the pitch where you come in and you say, hey, let me show you what we do. And you jump into a demo and you demo all the features. And this works, and it's not like this never works. This actually works when you have quite a sophisticated buyer that's done their research all, all, already. They have a big long checklist of features that they're looking for very specifically. So this can work. Um, and it's our comfort zone for us. It works because it's easy. We're very comfortable with demoing features. Um, the problem is, is if I don't have a very sophisticated buyer that already knows exactly what features they want, it, you're leaving it up to the customer to do the work to translate between these, these features translate to this value for me as a customer. The other thing it doesn't necessarily do is it's just talking about you. It's not talking about how you compare to anybody else. So it also leaves that up to the customer to figure out how you're different than all the other potential solutions that they could choose. The second kind of pitch is, is the founder origin story pitch. And, and this one I actually like quite a bit. You know, this is where you say, dude, I used to run sales enablement at Cisco and it was awful. And I know exactly what your problem is, man. I, I, you know, I tried it like this, it didn't work. I tried it. And so I decided, forget it. I'm going to start my own startup and I make sales enablement. I feel your pain and I, I built a thing to address your pain. And so these pitches actually work very well, um, particularly in, in, in achieving this authentic connection with a customer. They're, they're like, we get you, we know you. Um, the problem with them is that, uh, well, one, in all the companies I ever worked at, the origin story was way complicated. <laughs> like it just, we couldn't tell that story. The origin story was like, you know, we actually built a thing for something completely different. And then we almost went broke. And then the co-founders broke up. And then we decided to do something else. And then we did a thing. And then we accidentally got a customer. And then we realized like, hey, this works. And then, we, you know, I can't tell that story in a pitch. It's too complicated. Um, the other thing is like, you know, it works really well when the founder does it less well when the sales rep attempts to, to deliver that story. It doesn't have quite the same authenticity. Um, and here's the other thing. It doesn't always do a great job of explaining what kind of customers are we best suited for. So that, that's a bit of a problem with the origin story one sometimes, right? Like it doesn't necessarily say, so I built a thing that's only good for big companies, not small companies. Um, so that is a, bit, is a bit complex there too. And then the last kind of pitch we get, and I see a lot of this right now because it's trendy, that is like the big vision pitch. Um, and um, this pitch usually comes from companies that have been out raising money because the, the big vision pitch works really well with a VC. And this is the pitch where you come in and you say, the world is changing. And in the future, there's gonna be winners and losers and you might be a loser, you might be a loser. And the only way to be a winner is to come on this journey with me, man. <laughs> I've got this thing and the entire market is gonna blow up. And after it does, the only thing left on the apocalyptic planet will be me and my software. And you better be over on this bus over here because all the other buses, everyone dies. And so it's a bit like that. Um, the problem with these big vision pitches is again, sometimes they work. Like if you're in 
a, a market that is really in the middle of some crazy transformation, if your thing is absolutely unique and there is nothing else like it on the planet, uh, sometimes these things work. They work really well with a VC. And if you want to raise some money, this pitch works amazing. Um, but the, the biggest problem with them is it, it doesn't necessarily connect to what your product does for people right now. It's a bit of a future forward pitch. And so sometimes customers get to the end and one of two things happen. Like sometimes, sometimes the customer buys in already that the future is changing and blah, blah, blah. And you've just spent 25 minutes on it. And we're like, yeah, my dude, we know already the future. Yeah, it's changing, whatever. Just tell me what you do right now. <laughs> like get to the point. And how are you any different than the five other companies that, oh, by the way, are also telling me the future is changing and blah, 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 blah. Um, so it tends to, uh, it, it aggravates customers sometimes, or the customer just kind of doesn't buy into the future. It is a bit like, this all sounds a bit like bull crap. Like, uh, you know, and so you, you run the risk of it sounding like a bit like this pushing buzzword bingo. Um, so, uh, and you'll hear about this from Bob later, but you know, my conclusion on this, if you look at this, like on the one side, we've got customers that don't know how to buy. And on the other side, we've got founders that are struggling to figure out how to sell. And so what if we could figure out a way to communicate our ideas such that, you know, we are actually selling in a way that's also helping our customers buy. Um, so what if there was a way to sort of bring together the best of all worlds of all those pitches? So I could expose my features, but within the context of why those features matter, I could do this authentic connection with customers that makes them under like, I get what you're struggling with. Um, in a way that's valuable to them. And I could give them kind of a genuinely helpful way to think about the market and where it's going. It doesn't sound like bull crap, um, and, but it would give me a way to think about all the solutions in the market, not just my stuff. Um, so the background on this is interesting. If you go and look at the data on this stuff, the data shows that Customers want this and companies that can do it are successful. And so th th this set of data right here, I pulled from uh, this amazing book uh, called The Challenger Sale, uh, which uh, did, did, did a great big longitudinal in-depth research study of what makes a good salesperson effective and what do uh, enterprise buyers actually want in salespeople. And so uh, when they talked to buyers and said, what do you want in a sales experience? Uh, what do you like best in a salesperson? They said things like their top things were, um, I like a person that comes in and gives me unique and valuable perspectives on the market. I like people that come in and help me navigate alternatives. I like people that are helping me avoid potential landmines. And I like folks that educate me on issues and outcomes. On the flip side, when they went and looked at the salespeople, they're like, what do the best salespeople out there do? What they're doing is they're teaching for differentiation. They're teaching for differentiation. So they're teaching the buyers how to think about the market so they can make educated, informed decisions. So 
I think the solution to this is, and I'm, I'm going to call this the point of view pitch. I think the solution to this is you need to build a point of view pitch. So what the point of view pitch is, is a pitch that expresses my point of view on what the best solutions are to a particular problem for different kinds of customers. What I'm doing is I'm giving you a way to think about the market. So let me give you an example of this. So um, I got this company in the sales enablement space, which is, you know, I was using that as an example because I'm leading you to this. So, uh, so they're in the sales enablement space. And the first thing you got to know about the sales enablement space is it's horrifying. Like you see that box, there's thousands of companies out there that say they do sales enablement. Um, so, but when you look, so let's start with the positioning, like what exactly is level jump? So the competitive alternatives to what they do uh, are training materials on a shared drive. So I got to train my salespeople and get them up to speed. How do I do that? Well, you start by just putting some stuff on a shared drive. You get a little bit more sophisticated and you start buying software that basically looks like a CMS. It's like a better uh, you know, way of sharing materials with a group. And then if you get really sophisticated beyond that, you have an LMS, which is a learning management system, which looks more like training software. So what does Level Jump have that nobody else has? Well, they've, they've built this stuff on Salesforce. So, uh, and you might say, well, so what? Well, the, the value that that gives people is that you can actually combine your training data with your sales data and do some stuff with it. So the first thing is you can see whether or not your training's working so that you can build better training materials because you can tell whether or not your training resulted in people selling more stuff. Um, it gives the sales enablement person a way to prove whether or not the stuff they're doing works. Uh, and lastly, you can look for patterns. So if I see certain salespeople do this and that works, I can, I can build training programs that, that mimic that. So the whole thing gets better over time. That's the value they deliver. What's their ideal customer? Their ideal customer is someone who's a little bit more sophisticated on this sales training bit, right? So you're actively hiring a lot of reps and you've got a head of sales enablement. So what's the market category of what they do? What they are is actually outcome-based sales enablement. There's sales enablement that delivers results. They're still in the sales enablement market. Now, how do I pitch this in this point of view sort of way? Now, the way they're originally pitching it is they come in and they say, hey, we're level jump. Let me show you how it works. And they jump into the demo and they walk through sort of, here's how you put your training materials in. Here's how you share it with the sales rep. Here's how you do all this stuff. And people weren't necessarily getting, yeah, but why is it different than the 19 million other sales enablement things out there? Because all of this stuff is kind of buried in the middle of the pitch. Here's a different way you could pitch it. You could say, hey, I'm sitting across from who? Head of sales enablement. So I can go right to the chase. Hey, to head of sales enablement. Sales enablement is important, right? Yeah, it's your job. You know why it's important? It's important because every day your reps aren't closing deal, deals or making quotas, that costs you money. And they got some nice data that shows you exactly how much money it costs you. It costs you a lot of money. Every day your reps getting up to speed, a lot of money. So they explore that, it costs you a lot of money. So the head of sales enablement is like, yeah, yeah, I know. That's why I do what I do, man. And then you say, so look, we, we, we're in this space. We know how people solve this problem. They solve it in one of three ways. Put some stuff on a shared drive. That's good. It's free and it's easy. If you only had one sales rep, that'd be all right. But here's the problem. No version control. You don't know who's using what. 
uh, and I got no metrics. I can't even tell if the sales reps are even looking at it. So I might get more sophisticated, put, do a content management system. Great. Now I got version control. I can keep real tight control over what the reps see. Problem is I really can't track. Is it working? Is it not working? Who used the stuff and who didn't? Um, so I can't really track who's done what. Then I get a little bit even more specific. I got an LMS so I can actually force people to take the course and I can measure whether they took the course. That's great, that's an improvement. But you know what? None of those things were designed for sales. So none of these things lets me track, is the training actually working the way we want it to work? Does it, does it drive more sales? Do I get to quota faster? Do I get the first deal faster? So you know what? In a perfect world, our sales enablement solution would give us a way to measure effectiveness with sales metrics, right? There's a critical moment in the pitch. I have not pitched you my software yet. All I have pitched you is my point of view on the market. And so at this moment, when I say right, you're either with me or you're not. And so if I have aligned you with my point of view, Nah, I'm going to pitch you my stuff. It's like rolling down a hill. If I haven't, then you've disqualified yourself. <laughs> or I've done a bad job doing the setup. So if I lean across and I say, perfect world sales enablement gives us a way to measure effectiveness with sales metrics, right? And the sales enablement person goes, well, yeah, yeah, of course. If you could do that, that'd be amazing. And then you say, great, that's what we do. We're leverage them. We do outcome-based sales enablement. We're gonna help you, one, build better stuff, uh, build sales readiness programs that drive actual revenue results. Two, we're gonna let you show the impact of what it is that you do. We're gonna let you prove how your sales enablement impacts sales metrics. And then lastly, you can optimize the performance by taking what your best performance do and, and replicating it with the rest of your team. Here's our proof that we can do what we can say, what we say we can do, 86% faster time to opportunity, 20% faster time to second deal, 50% decrease in ramp time. And oh, by the way, I can actually track that to actual revenue dollars if you give me your stuff. That's the pitch. Now, how do you build one of these things? Um, it sounds cool, but can you build it for anything? Like, does that actually work with just this thing or does it work with everybody? Um, the way you build this is a little bit of a three-step process. Like the first thing you have to do is in order to build that pitch, I actually have to get really tight on my positioning. I couldn't build that pitch without being super clear on who it is that I'm selling to, what they value, what my differentiators are, who my real competitive alternatives are. So I need to get super tight on the positioning. Then I work in the setup. The setup is everything before the right, which is here's the challenge, here are the market alternatives, here's the insight I get from looking at those, and here's my description of the perfect thing. And then if you're right, 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 right. Then I get to switch to the second part, which is the follow through. Here's my company. Here's the value my product delivers. These are the features that enable that value. Here's the proof I can do what I say I can do. So you got to start with positioning. And I talked about this last year and I could probably spend a good 15 million hours talking about positioning, but here it is at a super high level. Your positioning defines how your product's the best in the world at delivering some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. It consists of five pieces. 
I need to understand exactly who my competitive alternatives are. If I didn't exist in the world, what would customers do? Then I need to understand what are my capabilities that, that are different than those other alternatives. And then how do those capabilities map to value? That gets me my unique value. I need to understand exactly who the person is sitting across from me in this pitch. So I need to understand my customer segmentation in enough detail that I have insight into what their challenges are. And then lastly, I need to know what is the market I intend to win? So what is the market category that I play in? To get to this, I believe you need to do a structured process to do it, um, to do it well. These pieces are not always intuitive to companies and the companies that I work with, it, it, we do it with a process and we start with competitive alternatives. Generally, you would think that competitive alternatives would be obvious, but almost every company I work with, that first step is hard. I'll give you an example. This week I worked with a team and they gave me the, this stack of paper and this was their um, uh, competitive analysis. There were 72 competitors in that competitive analysis. But when we went into this and said, okay, in a deal, if a customer didn't use you, what would they do? What were they doing before you showed up? And you know what the VP sales told me? He says, 50% of the time, Excel, they're using Excel. <laughs> Your positioning is really different if what you're trying to take out is Excel versus what they thought their competitor was, which was IBM. <laughs> These are very different competitors. Once I have clarity on this is what I actually compete with, then I can say, what do I got that they don't have? Once I understand that from capabilities, I can map it to value. When I understand that value, I can say, who cares a lot about that value? That's gonna get me a really tight definition on who exactly are my best people to sell to. And then the last bit is market category. I got this value to communicate to these people. How do I contextualize that in a way that it makes sense? That's am I email or am I chat or am I team collaboration? That's how you get that. Again, I don't want to go too far down the positioning rat hole. I wrote a book on this. There's like hundreds of pages. If you want to go nuts on positioning, you can spend seven bucks and go buy it. So you get that positioning bit. Then what do you do? <laughs> There's Mark. <laughs> then what do you do? So I've got that. Then I've got two pieces to this pitch. I got the setup. I got the follow through. So the setup starts with what is the challenge for this particular customer given what I know about them that is sitting across from me and specifically how do I frame the challenge in a way that leads them to my value? This is actually kind of takes some thought to frame the challenge in a way that leads to your value. So you get that and then you say, okay, customer struggling with this, right? And then you move to market landscape pros and cons. Here's all the different ways you could solve this. You could do it with Excel, cheap and easy, but here's the problem with that. You could do it with interns, cheap and easy. They quit on you, you know, or you could do it with great big enterprise software. Oh, does everything, super expensive, hard to deploy, not fast to get going, all these things. So you, you outline this and then that discussion leads you to an insight that says, you know what? We've been thinking about this all wrong. Like if we look at this, none of the current alternatives are really solving the challenge the way we set it up. And then you move to this description of the perfect world, which is 
knowing what we know about what works and doesn't work in the current solutions and knowing what we know about what's possible with technology today if we really wanted to solve this problem here's what the characteristics of a perfect solution would be we'd have this without this i'd have this without this i'd have this without this right there's the turning point in this pitch now i'm not pitching you my stuff yet i'm pitching you my point of view on what the best possible solution for this challenge is given the context of you as the customer and all the other ways you could do it. Then once I've got you there, then I can flip to the follow through. The follow through looks like a standard pitch. Here's us, here's what we do. This is the value we deliver. These are the features we have that enable that value. Here's the proof we can do what we say we can do. And then the end of the pitch is the ask, whatever it is you want them to do next. Please have another meeting with me. Please take me to your boss. Please just buy some stuff and we can get out of there. <laughs> That's how you do it. Now the positioning components are important because they map to all the different pieces of this pitch. I can't figure out how I frame the challenge until I really understand who the ideal customer is and I really understand my value. It's a combination of those and it's the other side of the coin. So I have to frame that properly. Secondly, I gotta understand how to contextualize all the alternatives. I don't want a list of 75 different competitors. I want to be able to put them in categories and say, these guys, there's 1500 companies here, but you know what they are? They're content management systems. There's 29 companies here, but you know what they are? They're learning management systems. There's all the different ways you can do it manually. Let's just call that manual. Here's your choices. Do it manual, do it with a CMS, do it with an LMS. Here's why all those suck. I got to know how to contextualize that stuff before I can build this pitch. The perfect world is essentially the flip side of my value, right? This is, this is me saying, look, your purchase criteria for this solution should look like this. Um, and then I'm going to introduce who I am. I usually do that by stating my market category. Here's the market I'm going to win. And then this whole value and capabilities that comes out of your positioning too, right? And we did that by looking at what's differentiating for you and how does that map to value? What are the capabilities that support that value? So the whole thing goes in here. So I have a couple of other examples to drive this home. So um, I just joined the board of a company. They're so cool. Um, and they're called Mesh Diversity. And they're quite small, early stage company. Um, and what they do is uh, anti-racism and inclusion software. So this is kind of a new idea. We don't have software that does this, <laughs> uh, but so that's what they do. Now, what's interesting with them is um, when I started working with them, they did not have a super clear uh, um, identification around exactly who were they selling to. So at the beginning, when they phrased the problem of here's the problem they solved, they'd say, we solve you know, problems related to racism and diversity in companies. And so what they would do is they would start by talking about, you know, here's why racism is impacting your company performance. Here's why inclusion is impacting your company performance. And they would go blah, 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 all the way down. And it took them forever. It was kind of like the big vision pitch. It took them forever to get to the point on, oh, by the way, we have software to solve this. And here's why you should pick us. Um, and a lot of the times the reaction they got was the company would say, yeah, we know that already, Mesh, and, and we've got training and diversity programs to do that. Like, you know, what, what, so you guys have software, like why buy software for it? 
And so we did a positioning workshop. And one of the things that came out is there is so much demand for this right now in the market. And they're a fairly small company that only has to do X number of deals this year. They can actually focus their marketing and sales efforts just on companies that already recognize that racism and diversity in their company is something they should solve. So when they pitch the stuff now, they come in and their starting point is, hey, CEO, you know that racism and inclusion is causing you pain in your company culture, right? And the CEO goes, yeah, I just eliminated 49 slides. <laughs> the CEO says, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm already doing stuff around that. We say, we, we know we are. And in fact, we work with lots of companies that are doing stuff and here's what they're doing. They're doing training programs. And you know what the problem with training programs is? There's a lot of problems. One, it's one and done. People come in, they do the training, they go away. You're trying to solve a systemic problem with a non-systemic solution. Two, you got no way of measuring how bad it is in your company right now and no way of measuring whether or not you improved it. No metrics, problem, right? Yeah, I guess you're right, that is a problem. In a perfect world, here's my perfect world pitch. In a perfect world, we would have a systemic solution to this systemic problem. We would have a way to measure where you're at and measure whether or not you're improving. We'd have a thing that works with everybody in your company and it works over time, right? Now, again, you're either with me or against me on that one, but if I get you there, then I got you. Then the rest of it is great. We're mesh diversity, we're anti-racism inclusion software. Here's what we got. We got a thing that works with everybody in your department. We got a whole bunch of metrics. We can track it over time, blah, 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 the rest of the pitch. Um, here's another one. Uh, this is a company I worked with uh, a while back. They're amazing. They do, um, they do enterprise storage devices and they're kind of hardware and software. And what they do is really, really niche. -y. Their big problem is the competitive landscape on this. Oh my God, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrifying. So they work mainly with uh, big research, life sciences research. It's, it's two things. It's either I do research, genomic research, GIS data, really gorpy like science data, or I'm doing video stuff and I need this like big, big storage device that, that does really high throughput. And so they make these storage devices. Now the alternatives to this are either the big companies. So you go with like HP or Dell or whatever. And these things have amazing solutions, but way too expensive for any of these folks to be able to really consider. Um, so instead what they bump into is people building homegrown stuff with piece parts, but then they don't get any support and they're not really techie and they hate that. Um, or they have these kind of mid-range systems that are like lower cost, but they don't actually do the scalability. So when they, so they always had a hard time differentiating because there were so many competitors. So the big thing we did there was to be able to tell this story about, look, you're doing this kind of research or you're doing this sort of video processing and you've got choices and the choices fit in three categories. It's either enterprise stuff, too, does exactly what you want, way too expensive. You got the roll your own stuff, might get you to where you need, way too complicated, no support. Or you got these other ones that look like a low end version of the enterprise guys, but don't actually have the throughput and the performance that you need. We're the best of all those worlds. That's how they do that pitch. Um, lastly, what happens after the sales pitch? Because I, I got this question a little bit yesterday. And um, so 
it, communicating your point of view is not just the pitch. It actually permeates everything you're doing in sales and marketing. So if I go back to my level jump example, the folks that do the sales enablement stuff, um, they do this really amazing job of communicating their point of view across a whole bunch of different marketing things that they do. So at one point they built this piece of content and it was like sales tech explained using donuts. And so they did this like, here's how all the vendors split out into all these other categories. So we have sales intelligence. What is that? I know who likes the donuts. Here's three examples of companies that do that. I need a sales dialer. I only call people who like donuts. That's ring central. It's eight by eight. Um, conversational intelligence. I see if I'm talking too much about donuts and that's gong and all the rest of it. And there they are. They're down there in sales readiness and enablement, which is I trained to become the master at selling donuts. And there's three companies in there. It's Level Jump, plus their two big competitors, which they do not care if you put on a short list or not, because they have a clear differentiator and they're going to beat them. They just want to be on the short list. Um, they started getting a lot of questions about how does this stuff relate to the other tech that I have in my ecosystem? So they created this thing that looks like uh, it looks like the map to a shopping mall where there's levels. And they're like, look, at the base level, you've got sales engagement and conversational intelligence. Everybody has that. That's where Gong fits. That's where Salesforce fits. It's all down there. And then you're going to layer on some stuff above that. You might have corporate learning. That's good for the generic corporate learning, which you do everywhere else. And then you've got, um, so you've got a learning experience platform, a learning management platform. Here are the vendors in here. But then you want sales enablement that's different. You can think about it in two ways. It's either content management systems or their sales readiness. We're over here in sales readiness, top right, level jump. If what you actually want is real sales readiness, that's where it is. Here's how it fits with everybody else. Giving you a way to think about the market, super helpful. Both these pieces of content, super popular with their customers. Um, and then you look at their website and their website is just driving home this point of view over and over and over across all the stuff they do. So their tagline is outcome-based sales enablement. Prove the revenue impact of your go-to-market readiness coaching and enablement programs. That's the headline. That's what we do, right? Then we get into here's how Level Jump ties enablement to revenue and we got a nice graph there showing the product. Um, they talk about the three uh, there are three value points and what the supporting points of that are. Um, and then on the homepage near the bottom, they've got the, here's the outcomes. Here are the numbers that we can drive for your company. This is how we prove we can do what we say. And they've talking about proving the ROI of sales enablement. Um, so here's the key takeaways. So one, um, teaching customers how to think about a market is hugely valuable to them. Your point of view on a market uh, can do that, it needs to be rooted in your positioning. Um, so communicating your point of view should help customers understand how to make choices. Um, and once a customer is aligned to your point of view, then selling them is actually super easy. Uh, this is me, this is my email address, and you can find me on Twitter and other places. Um, and that's my website. Silence. <laughs> Thank you for clapping because that actually feels really good. One of the worst things as a speaker when you when you speak is this like you, you feel a bit like you're yelling at the wind, like you don't get the same, can't actually see everyone's faces. And then at the end, there's just this silence and you're like, was that good? I don't know.
the goldfish in the tank feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Oh, that's brilliant. That, uh, thank you, April. Um, is Dr. Doofenshmirtz uh, a good friend of yours? What? <laughs> I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> Maybe I misheard. I misheard. Um, fabulous. Thank you. And we will open up for questions, I think. I think there's a few people who have been making comments in the uh, chat, but what I'd love to do is oh, um, have people raise hands or uh, even just take yourself off mute and, and start talking. I see, I see a question in the chat that I would love to address, which is this, oh, okay. how to apply this approach in smaller ticket self-serve sales. Can I talk? Can I take that one first, just for fun? That would be a brilliant question to answer. Who is it's it from? a really good question because I'm I'm doing this in the in the context of a pitch, right? Which if I don't have a salesperson, how do I do the pitch, April? And so, um, so one I was attempting to show in the last three slides of that, you know, in the case of Level Jump, where they're creating content that helps folks think about the market. So, you know, they've got this donut thing, they've got this levels on the shopping mall thing. And then I showed some comment about how this point of view comes across on their website. So, you know, it's taking that point of view and running right at your differentiators and, and, and using it there. But generally when we talk about this, exploring the alternatives and where I fit versus the alternatives. You can do that well in content. I've seen companies do it really, really well with a really well-crafted explainer video. Like, and if you're looking for it, like it, it actually, your a point of view pitch is a really good framework for building an explainer video, right? Where you say, hey, where's this problem? Hey, you're doing this and struggle, right? And what you really want is this. That's what we are, here's how we do it. So explainer video works well for that. But I've seen companies that are self-serve, they do it in the content and they do it with the stuff they do on their homepage and they find other ways to do it. The other good way to do it is um, well-crafted customer case study, um, or a customer testimonial can also do this, but you need to actually craft it purposefully. So you need to, um, you need to have the, the, the narrative sort of start with, hey, we're this customer, we had this issue, we struggled with it in this way, and then we realized we needed to do it a different way, and then we chose this product because it actually gave us this other stuff. And so having a customer say that is super, super valuable and a good crafted case study or case study video can actually be constructed in that man manner with that um, story arc. Brilliant. Neil, uh, you've got a question. I, I'm just picking a couple out from the chat from earlier on. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks, April. Um, so, so the contextualization and, and basically setting the stage makes a lot of sense. Um, but but I've found that often often you can prepare people and they they like you get the nod and they're very super into it and then you go into so this is our company and immediately it could it triggers a like oh it's a sales pitch like how do do you have any pointers on like how to basically cross that chasm from drawing them into actually uh, doing the actual sale of who we are without kind of raising that flag <laughs> in some way. Yeah. So, so here's the thing, like one of the key things in your positioning is figuring out who are the right people to talk to. Right. And so this, 
this resistance to being sold to um, comes up for two reasons. One, because you're not providing any value and the value in this pitch that you should be providing is I'm giving you a way to think about the market. Even if you don't want my thing, right? I've given you a way to think about the market, which the research shows is super valuable to customers. So that upfront stuff should be valuable and that should make your customer more open to, hey, you know, we all know this is a sales pitch, right? At some point you're gonna get a sales pitch. So here's the sales pitch part. Second thing is it happens more often when you've got the bad fit customer sitting in front of you. So you've got the person that I get to the point where I'm like, right? And the customer's like, wrong, man. I actually don't care about inclusivity at my, at my company at all. All I want to do is something quick and dirty that makes it look like I do. So training does that just fine. <laughs> I don't need software to do that. <laughs> so, you know, so I flipped to the sales pitch, but they don't want to be sold because they weren't right at the right spot. So done well, if this is a sales situation, done well, this exploration of alternative ways of doing things should be a conversation. So you should be in there saying, this is what we see in, in companies. They do it manually. They do it with the CMS. They do it with an LMS. How you guys been doing it? Right. And then, and that's the, that's where you get to do this exploration with the customer and they'll say, Oh yeah, yeah. We actually started with a thing and then that didn't work. And then we went to whatever, or they'll say, you know what, we're still at the, on the Google drive thing, but we're, we're going to hire 50 sales reps this year. We know this is going to be bad and da, da, da. So this should be a conversation. And so by the time you get to the, everything that follows after, right, it should be like, let me tell you how we do this. Right, yeah, take so it or leave it. Right, but this is how we do it. But it would be stupid for us to end this conversation, and I don't tell you how we do it. <laughs> so, so basically, so, ending ending the trust. So by the time you pitch, it feels like you're sitting on the inside of the table and not across the table. Basically, that's right. It should feel like the, the term that the challenger sales guys use that I really really like is commercial teaching. Right, so it should feel like. I'm teaching you. I'm not just teaching you for the love of teaching. I'm teaching you for commercial purposes, but I'm not selling you. I'm teaching you. And so a good teacher is having a bit of back and forth. It's having a bit of, Hey, is this, is this resonating with you? You get it? Like, tell me about how you guys do it. How does this work? Like, and when you get to the right thing, I should not move past the right until I get the person going. Yeah. Right. Like it, it, sh it shouldn't be just like, yeah, right. Are we done? because <laughs> that's a wrong <laughs> that's not actually right that's like let's you've disqualified me let's get off this call and then you should just let them go like it's funny with the level jump folks the way that pitch is constructed um it works very well when you're sitting across from a head of sales enablement and one of their key value points is we're going to give the head of sales enablement a way to prove that their job, they are effectively doing their job. Now, occasionally they get to that point where the people go right. And you can see that the head of sales enablement has a suspicion that they suck at their job. And if their boss can measure whether or not they're good at their job, they're gonna get fired. And those people disqualify themselves at that moment in the pitch where they're like, I don't know. I don't know, we, you know we're not into measurement here you know, measurement's not a thing here. <laughs> and if that's true, you're never going to sell them any with anything.
So it, it, you might as well just disqualify them at this point and move on to someone who you can sell because you're never going to sell them. Your big differentiator is actually a negative for them. So I'm sitting in Cambridge, England. I'm going to ask someone from Sydney, Australia, Tim Burgess, to ask someone in Toronto a question <laughs> that's going to be very interesting. But it's boss, that I know is in Singapore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tim. Uh, so um, the question I had was um, with marketing, often they want to capture every lead and sales in particular that have a mind, can have a mindset that they want to make quota. So they want to convert every customer. Yeah. Uh, sometimes regardless of whether the solution is actually the best for them. So how do you persuade marketing yeah. and sales that they should be filtering customers or telling customers how to filter us out yeah. and choose a different yeah. solution? You know, and that's just, in my opinion, that's the level of the maturity of your marketing and sales organization, right? Like good <laughs> marketers know that, that that lead quality matters. Good salespeople know not to waste their time on deals that they can't close. Um, <clears throat> and what you'll see down the road from that is high churn. And so, you know, you'll be able to see it in the numbers afterwards and you'll be able to come back to your marketing and sales team and say, we're pushing garbage through this funnel. And yeah, we might close some things because we got superstar salespeople, but they're bullying people into buying. And what we're getting is folks that when they actually get the solution, they churn out on us because they don't. So I'm not sure. Like I do think that you do have to convince your marketing and sales team that the pool of ideal customers, the way you've defined it, is big enough to support the business. So often what you'll get is this, this panic to just sell everybody and close everybody is based on this idea that uh, if we don't, we'll never make the number. But if you back up and say, look, we're a startup, how many deals we got to close this year? 20? Okay. So if we gotta, we're going to close 20 deals this year, we need how many sale, qualified sales conversations? Five times that? Let's say 100. Let's say 10 times that, 200. Okay, 200 qualified sales conversations. How many leads do I have to come in the pipeline to get you 200 qualified sales conversations? Let's do another zero on the end of that because we're being crazy. Okay, so 2,000. Can you get me 2,000 leads if our definition of uh, perfect fit customer is, you know, company of this size in this particular space, doing these three actions with this software. How many people are there like that? Oh, look, there's 29,000 of them. There's 50,000 of them. There's 100,000 of them. We should be able to make this number easy, right? So why wouldn't we go fishing there versus fishing all these other places that, yeah, maybe we can close something, but they're way harder to catch. And so it, having the numbers and being able to build backwards up and say, marketing needs to deliver this many leads and then you say, look, so if in order for us to, to um, make the best use of our very limited marketing budget and our very limited people, we want the easiest way possible to create those leads. So the easiest way possible is to go after the people that are the actual best fit for our stuff. So instead of just spraying and praying and hoping that we, we hit something, um, you know, we're going to take this very targeted approach. Like, where do these people hang out? What do they do? What conferences do they go to? What um, forums do they hang out in? What newsletters do they just 
subscribe to? What places online are they? And let's have our marketing targeted there because we're just going to catch more good fish in the net. Yeah, I think but Matt Lerner had a few things to say on this yesterday. I know you spoke to Matt a month or so ago, uh, April, but uh, um, yeah, the perennial problem of marketing creating too many leads. It's not even not even something you've got an opinion on, April. Yeah, they're not like, in the, and in my mind, those aren't leads, right? So this is this is why the company needs to have a very good definition of what is a marketing qualified lead. Someone that follows me on Twitter is not an MQL, right? So what is a marketing qualified lead? And then, and then when we pass that lead to sales, what does sales have to do to qualify them and make that a sales qualified lead? So I say, well, if you attend my webinar and you signed up for this piece of content and you did whatever, that shows pretty good intent. So I'm gonna send that to sales. When sales gets it, what's the three questions that sales has to ask these people in order to qualify them and say, this is a deal worth chasing. At the executive level, everybody needs to agree on what those are. And you know, a mature marketing and sales organization does this, immature ones don't. And, and they learn the hard way until they get there. <laughs> <laughs> which sucks but um but it, it is the way of the world right another question harder to look around the room here ray deck thank you and thank you april for answering my uh, a chatted question. I, I want to look at this from the point of view of selecting a market. The, um, the, the way you've been describing this so far has been the context of how to put together the pitch once you're in the room and how to qualify when you're in the room and, and also through content. But I was wondering whether you had thoughts on whether this framework will be one to be choosing which market to go after or which segment to go after as opposed to looking at it on an individual uh, prospect basis. Uh, yeah, so, so in, in my opinion, um, when I'm trying to figure out who are my best fit customers, like which segment should I go after, um, I can have theories about that, but the best way, at least in, in my experience, the best way to actually figure that out is, is to go through this structured positioning process. So I start with you know, I'm in market now, I've got customers now. Um, if I look at my, my happy, good fit customers, if they didn't use me, what would they be using? And then, you know, when they do decide, if they do decide to move off status quo and look at other solutions, what are the other solutions? That gives me an idea of who do I have to beat? Then I say, okay, well, if I'm actually competing with these folks, here's what I've got that's different. And here's how that maps to value. And then once I understand my differentiated value, then I can say, okay, my differentiated value is this. Not everyone cares about that. Not everyone cares about that. So my best fit customers, there's something about them that makes them care a lot about that stuff. So I'll give you an example. I did a workshop a couple of weeks ago with these guys that do, um, that allows you to execute on a strategic plan. And it does this great job of it. 
But, that, you know, so we work through the value and the value of it is they make the strategic plan really visible across the whole team. You can tell exactly where you're at. And if you're missing it in some spots, you can go fix that. So then we have the discussion about who cares a lot about that. And they said, well, we're just targeting basically larger organizations because they're more likely to have a strategic plan. But I mean, that's not specific enough, really. Right. So then you think, well, the value they deliver is really about making sure you execute on this strategic plan. So if we ask ourselves the question, who really, really needs to execute on the strategic plan? And the answer to that is, well, you know, if you build the strategic plan because you've gotten trouble, like let's say you got in trouble with that, with the regulator, or you got your hand slapped for something, you're a publicly traded company, your response to that is, here's the strategic plan to fix it. And you're going to have to report to the board every quarter on that strategic plan. If I try to sell software to those guys, like my value is huge versus a co any old company that just has a strategic plan. Yeah, the value's okay, but maybe you don't care about executing on the strategic plan. And there's even particular segments. Like if you're a big nonprofit in the United States, you need to have a strategic plan and you need to report to all of your donors regularly on how you're tracking the strategic plan. It's a regulation, it's a requirement. So these guys could sell into that segment all day and it'd be super easy to close business there. Again, versus just anybody who has a strategic plan that's kind of like, yeah, yeah, maybe we execute on it, maybe we don't. So I think that's how you get really fine granularity on who are my best fit people, who's the easiest to sell to here. Does that answer your question? It, it's very helpful. Thank you. Did you want a clarification, Ray? Very helpful is unusual for you. It's usually, <laughs> ah, damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, 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 that's me most days of the week. I, I was, the, the, the example you're giving so far is one of the, when you already have a customer, which is usually like, the, it's also the way you position things in your book, right? And, and, and oh, how you're you talking about, but I'm not out yet. Like I don't yeah, basically to trying to figure out what best to place rather than, you know, the wheels already spinning. Right. Oh, that's a different thing. So you're right. So in that case, um, what you have in that case is you've gone out assuming and done your customer discovery. So you, you have what I would call a positioning thesis. So right. you're like, I, you know, I, I, I built this thing to solve this problem. Here's who I think I compete against. This is why I'm different. This is the value I delivered. These are the people that are gonna love it. And, and I've tried to validate that thesis as much as possible in the market by talking to customers, doing customer discovery calls. But in that case, um, you run the positioning based on that thesis. That's all you can do, right? I'd still use the same process, but that's all you can do is basically reason it out and say, this is my thesis. Now in your early customers, when you're first out, what you're doing is you're testing that thesis. You know, is it true? I have all these assumptions baked in there. And is it true that these kind of people love my stuff the most and whatever? So, and you're trying to validate that. Now, the advice I give companies that come to me that are in that situation is, and again, my, it depends on, you know, you're probably way smarter than me, but in my experience, all the products we had before we launched it, our thesis was bad. <laughs> and so we, you know, like we, we were, sometimes we were part right, but we were also, we were wrong on lots of cases. And so the, the, 
thing that I tell companies that come to me and they're really worried about getting super tight on the positioning at that stage is I'm like, you know what? The positioning is probably going to change and, and it probably needs to change. And you don't want to restrict too much who you bring in the funnel, because the more kind of different people you bring in the funnel, the more you're going to learn and validate your thesis. So I actually like to keep the positioning a little loose when you're at that stage uh, with the assumption that it's probably going to change. So like the, the, the example I used in the book is like, I invented a fishing net and my thesis is that it works really, really good for tuna. It's the world's greatest tuna fishing net, but I don't know yet for sure. And so I might be better to just position that as like, you know, fishing net for big fish and then, you know, take it out in the ocean, throw it out and see what I pull up. And maybe what, what happens is I pull up a lot of grouper and I just didn't think about grouper and I'm like, holy Hannah, I built a grouper fishing net. I didn't even know. And then I can tighten up the positioning around grouper fishing. And, you know, so at the beginning, I think you can actually keep it kind of loose. Your early customers, you're going to have to do extraordinary things to bring them on anyway. And the positioning can be loose and you can still do that. Does that help? That's also very helpful. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks. Uh, Alex Chikulescu, who's Chicago. No, hey. Sheffield. Thanks. That was really good. Um, I'm not sure this is what Ray was asking, but what I took from his question was like, if you're, I'm interested in like, I guess, new markets that maybe aren't very untapped. And I guess the, my take from your talk was like, you know, you've built a product because you really care about a particular point of view and now the challenge is convincing other people that you're on the same page as them. What if you are looking for point of views? Um, I, can you, have, you found, have you found people using these techniques to, I guess, discover new markets that maybe aren't very competitive or haven't been catered for very well? And then I get developing that point of view around that and, and then building for that as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, no. So I, so that sounds cool, but that's actually not what I do at all. So I don't know. It, it's an interesting idea, right? Like to actually do like, I will say that, um, okay, maybe I did it once, but, but I, I'm not sure we did it on purpose. But um, so when I was in the strategy group at IBM a long time ago, and in the strategy group at IBM, I got given the challenge, find us a market where we can make a billion dollars. These are very IBM things to go figure out. <laughs> and so it was like, go find us a billion dollars. And, and I was in the data management group. So what we did was a great big mapping exercise. And um, it, nobody does this anymore, but what we did was a market map exercise. So we mapped out, here's all the places where IBM plays right now. And so we had databases and we had data warehousing and we had whatever. And then here's all the other markets that exist right now with, with good players, but we don't play. And so these are interesting markets for us. Maybe we could acquire someone there. Maybe we build something in there to take that over. And then what we did was we kind of looked at where the gaps were and we had a bit of a thesis about the, the future of the world, right? And how this map might change <laughs> over time. And so what we did was we drew a big circle on the map and said, we, are, we think there's gonna be an emerging market here that is a combination of this, this, and this. And then we took some, 
I'm going to be honest with you, garbage products that we already had <laughs> that fit in there. And then we built a story around it that was our vision for where this solution set was going to go. And then we locked ourselves in a room for six months with Gardner Group and convinced them that the world was going to go that way. Uh, and then we launched this thing. And when we launched it, what we had was three, four existing products that really didn't do a whole lot, but we had this awesome story and we were IBM. So we had credibility when we said, trust us, we're going to execute on this story. And so we took these three little things that combined were selling about 2 million a year and sold 280 million of that, that first year on the story. And then we did a bunch of big acquisitions and in six years, that was a billion dollar business, but you know, not grown organically. It was grown through acquisition for the most part, but, but we proved, we had to prove we could do a quarter. We, we had to do, we had to prove we could do a quarter billion with the junk we had now. <laughs> We, we shouldn't distribute this video anywhere. Um, and uh, uh, so I guess I think that does happen at big companies in the strategy group. I think big companies are looking for, you know, we got a point of view on where the future of the business goes. And is there a spot where we could draw a circle around it and say, here's a place where we can make a lot of money and then let's go after that. I, you know, I, there's probably startup accelerators out there that are doing some thinking about things like that and have a point of view on the market and, and apply it. Like, you know, certainly if I look at things like, like mesh diversity is a great example. Like they're in a completely greenfield space. There's no software in there to solve that now. The idea of software to do things that directly impacts company culture is actually pretty new. And so, their point of view is very much around, you're gonna to wanna to have metrics around that. And so, you know, if you're gonna do that, there's a way using behavioral science to break culture down into a set of 17 metrics that you can then influence, improve and track. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it's, it's good, thank you. I think getting Gardner to invent a category for you is a pretty good idea for creating a category. Well, I don't, I actually, uh, so I'll play devil's advocate on that. I think creating categories is a terrible idea. Like, so I, I so I actually think it's the worst way to go to market. Like it, what mesh, mesh diversity is a good example. Like you might call that category creation. I don't, right? Because there, there are people already understand the problem and they're already attempting to solve the problem in other ways. So it makes it very easy to sell because you go in and you say, look, you already have this problem. You're doing it this way. I got a better way to solve it. That's not category creation. Category creation is you don't even know you have the problem. You don't even know. You got no clue. It's a new category. And you are actually not out there attempting to solve it right now because you're blissfully unaware. And the history of technology tells us that category creators generally lose the market they create. So it's MySpace to Facebook, it's Ask Jeeves to Google, it's all the, remember creative MP3 players? <laughs> like the, the history of technology tells us that the companies that do the work to educate the market that they do indeed have this problem and they should look for solutions, generally lose it to fast followers that come in and execute on the solution better. So there, there are actually almost no examples 
of companies that when they were small, created a category and then lived to actually uh, dominate the category. Yeah, but they probably had a lot of fun the way. Um, but I think, no, thank you. That's a really good answer and it gave me a lot to think about. Okay. It's really so, popular right now, this idea of category creation, but it's mainly popular with venture capitals because they believe deeply in it. But most of the companies that we would see as like, like Tesla, it's not a category creator. We know what electric car is. There were electric cars before they came, right? Like, so most of the examples that people give as category creators are actually coming into an emerging, perhaps, but existing market category. category. What's that? but taking a different point of view on, on a category that exists and probably explaining it much better. Yeah, that's right. Question from Neil Nobluch, uh, um, who I'm, I'm betting pretty much everyone in the room is going to be able to answer this one. But uh, Neil. Yeah, um, um, so this one is, is basically, uh, obviously, this displacement versus alternatives. To what extent would you say it's smart to to boldly um, and publicly do this via like your website and LinkedIn versus keeping this as a trump card in your back pocket. Um, obviously by, by placing your, putting yourself out there and explicitly saying these are the alternatives, this is why we're better. Yeah, maybe you can just speak to that and uh, yeah. mess so online messaging versus just keeping it for the guy closed. Right. Door. So, so sometimes I think you can do it explicitly and sometimes you don't have to. So if I use level jump as the example, they are clearly differentiating themselves from the alternatives without talking about the alternatives on their homepage. So everything on their homepage talks about outcome driven sales enablement. No other sales enablement platform out there does that. And so they are hammering on that point because they're the only ones that do it. And so they don't actually have to say better than seismic, better than high spot, better than whatever, because if you're looking at the other guys, it sparks the question like, well, don't the other guys do that? And the answer is no, they don't. Um, it does work, like often you have to call it out explicitly if what you're replacing is a status quo thing, like, you know, stop doing this on Excel, because <laughs> then here's why. <laughs> so you see a lot of websites that explicitly do it when they're like, you know, doing this on paper is really bad. Let me tell you why. Um, so you do do that. But there's, there's, uh, and there are particular times where you do want to call out a competitor explicitly, but it's a little bit hard to do with you know, with some finesse on a website where we're not having a conversation and I'm just saying IBM is bad and we are good. <laughs> like, it's hard to do it in a way that sounds authentic and genuine and not just like taking a cheap shot at my competitor. So it, it varies on a case by case basis, I think. But, um, but sometimes like, so for example, I worked at a company where we did enterprise CRM and our big competitor was like Salesforce was still selling the low end of the market at that point. Our big competitor was this company called Seaball. And there were zero deals that we went into where people weren't also looking at Seaball. They were a 2 billion revenue company, the absolute gorilla in our market. We never mentioned them by name on the website, but the website was all about 
we only played in investment banking. And so it was all about why investment bankers need a CRM that is very specifically built for investment banking. And so we're essentially taking on Siebel without saying their name. Now in the sales meeting, we'd be stupid not to say their name because it's the elephant in the room. Everybody knows Siebel. So in a sales meeting, you know, if we didn't mention it was one of the first questions we got anyway. And so people say, how are you different than Siebel? And we're saying, they're great. We love them. They're amazing. They're, they're, they're general purpose CRM. They're the leader in general purpose CRM. You don't want general purpose CRM. You want CRM <laughs> for investment true. bankers, right? And it's, it's specifically, you want CRM for investment bankers because the way you sell is different and you can't do it in Siebel like that. And so we would just stick to highlighting our differentiators rather than specifically say Siebel doesn't do this. Um, yeah. But in some cases, you would want to call them out, I think. Hi, April. Thanks. That was a great talk. I was at last year's and um, this was as good as last year's, which was awesome. Oh, boy. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my question is, and then I'll give a bit of background, is are there ways to track back from sales results to see if specifically your positioning has been handled well by the sales team and has it had a positive impact? And that was prompted because you put something very diplomatically when you said that a more mature sales team will make <laughs> rather than just to sell to everyone. Um, and yeah. a company that doesn't do that will have high churn. And the thing is, I'm just thinking, how do you track back high churn to that particular root cause? Right. So, um, so, so a bunch of things. So one is, when I'm doing positioning work, like back when I was a vice president of marketing in-house, um, if we had new positioning, the way we would test that new positioning is I would build a sales pitch exactly the way I described it in this talk. So I build this point of view sales pitch. I would take my best sales rep so I could control for just poor salesmanship. So I'd take my already best performing sales rep. I would train them on this pitch. And then we would go and do pitches together, like with the sales rep pitching and me um, trying to read the customer's mind. Like, are they looking confused? Do they look excited at this point? And so we would iterate on the pitch, usually over a month or a couple of months with us, my good sales rep using the new pitch deck. And then after everyone, we'd say, what worked, what didn't work? And we'd iterate on it until we got a pitch that we thought, oh, this, is, this really works. My definition of pass fail on that test was if we got to a point where I looked at it and said, this seems like it's working really good because customers are really excited. They get, they get what we do in the way that we do it. They're excited for the right reasons um, and the pitch works good. And my sales rep who is very good says, this pitch is great. I'm not going back to the old pitch. I'm going to keep this pitch. I would call that a pass. So once it, once the positioning was, I would call that validated. So once I had validated the positioning, then I would work on the messaging document and the messaging for the web page and everything else, because I'm the head of marketing and I'm in charge of all that so I can control that. But the next thing I would have to do is figure out how can I replicate what I just did with that one sales rep with all the rest of the sales reps. And so um, and that, that's a sales enablement problem, which is um, I need to have training materials for the sales reps. A lot of the times what I would do then is I would have my best rep already trained on how to do this pitch. If I had a smaller team, I could have the other reps essentially 
do ride-alongs with this rep and learn from the first rep how to do it. Otherwise, we'd be doing pitch training and whatever, and we tried to get, and we tried to um, train people on how to do the pitch the way it was. In the companies where I worked at, we were fairly strict about what you, what you were and were not allowed to do in a sales call. And yeah. so we were pretty prescriptive. Like you couldn't go off the script. Like you couldn't just go in and pitch it any way you wanted. Um, we, this is the pitch we validated. We knew, now if you didn't think the pitch was good and you thought it needed to change, you could come back to me and we'd talk about it and try other things. But we validated that this works. So we don't want you going off the script and pitching willy nilly. Now, occasionally we would, uh, get the feedback that the reps were going off the script and, and pitching whatever. And generally we would do that with, at, at this point we had call recording things. And so the VP sales would be listening in on gong call recordings of sales pitches. And if he started to notice that the rep was going off, we would correct it. Now to answer your other question, like how can I tell if I'm getting churn um, because the positioning was bad and people bought for the wrong reasons. And then they got in and they figured out like, oh, this doesn't do the thing that I thought that it did. Um, it's a little hard to measure, but we would do um, surveys and interviews and stuff with people that had churned. Not everybody, but we would do some. And the things we were looking for is, you know, did we churn because they outgrew what we did and in which case they're no longer in our target market and that's fine and that's good churn and we're going to have some of that or did they did they churn right away like fairly fairly soon after they sold and there was was there a surprise so we would ask questions like you know was there anything that you found surprising after you bought the product or was there something that you didn't expect mm -hmm. after you bought the product and the answers to those questions sometimes gave us a clue that something in our sales pitch or our marketing or our positioning set them up to think we did this and then they got on board and they were like oh shit you don't do that you do this um so we'd be looking for things that would indicate that gap yeah no that makes sense it's kind of it's a nice simple way to get a lot of useful information isn't it and i like yeah. your first point there when you were talking about sort of the trailing up the training up of the sales team but the first trialing out with your best salesperson so that you remove the variation that might come with different salespeople. so no good that's yeah. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. The other thing it does is it gets buy-in from the sales team, right? Like if like, like, I don't know if you ever tried this, but like if the head of marketing just builds a pitch and then floats it over to the sales team and says, okay, use this. Like th the answer is no, thanks. <laughs> they just don't use it. They're just like, or the worst they'll all say, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll use that. You know, and then they, they use their old one. And so, I, you know, you, I would use this validation as a way to sell the rep on this thing. Like, look, I'm going to force you to use it, but buddy, if it doesn't work, we're going to throw it out and we're going to go back to the old one. Don't worry. And so, you know, if, if I could, if we could get to a point where the sales rep says, now I believe it because I've seen it and I've done it and I've seen it work, then it would make it easier for me to convince the other sales reps because the best sales rep in the group is saying, no, I use this one because this one works. Mm -hmm. um, it's easier to get the other folks on board too. I mean, there's always some competitors against every solution. So I guess the question is, what does it really mean to define the category or create one, if you know what I mean? Like in other words, well, that's it. the it's really just a reframing. It's a reframing of something, right? Yeah. It's a reframing of something. So the only place where you have absolutely no competitors is where there is absolutely no understanding of the problem. None. 
So, so you're right. coming in and you're saying, you know what? Uh, I, the, the thing I'm doing right now is a flute plumber. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know what that is. And you're like, well, let me tell you, like there's this and there's this and there's this and there's this and right in the middle of this space, there's a thing you never, ever thought about before. And you, we need software for that, <laughs> you know? And so if I'm doing true category creation, first, I got to sell you on the problem. I got to sell you on the problem, right? It's, if you look at uh, Blackberry is a good example, right? At early folks in, in smartphones, right? At the beginning, it was like, why do I want to read email on my device? I don't need to read email on my device, right? And so like it, like, it took them forever to basically teach people that, yeah, being able to read email on your mobile device is actually a really good thing. Uh, and then once the, you know, and then once that became sort of successful, what happens? <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.